0: If you have a Bible, go and grab it and open it to the book of Mark. To the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter three. If you're using a, a Bible in the pew, it's going to be on page 709, 709. And the big numbers are chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. We have been following the story of Jesus through through this gospel. Um, and, and now what we're going to look at is a summary of kind of what Jesus has done, done thus far and the calling. Of the apostles. So again, it's Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 19. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. And it says this Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. A large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. He was strongly warned them not to make him known. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him. To send them out to preach. To have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve to Simon. He gave the name Peter. And to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's pray. Lord, we know that your wounds have paid our ransom. We know that we are completely undeserving, even of this precious gift of your word. So we know, Lord, that that if it's up to us and our own strength, our own ability, then we are completely helpless before you this morning. We'll be unable to focus, unable to understand, unable to treasure your word. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit would help us this morning to see your glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who would your dream team be? When when I gather with a bunch of guys and we talk amongst each other, we, we tend to come up with dream rosters of whatever we're passionate about. If you like basketball, you think about your, your greatest all-star team of, of the greats from all time and, and who will play what position. I, I'm not a sports guy, so I may think of, of the best Christian conference ever and who I would line up as speakers I would like to listen to preach. Whoever you think the greatest of whatever you're passionate about, I guarantee you that Jesus' list of the best people to follow him would not be these 12 disciples. And what we see in this story is, is a contrast from Jesus' massive ministry that's continuing to spread and, and have influence throughout the entire area to this ragtag group of disciples that Jesus calls to follow him. And in it, we can we can see Jesus' intention for, for how he, he intends to operate his ministry and, and hope for us as well. So two points for us this morning. Number one, we're going to look at Jesus' ministry. And number two, we're going to look at Jesus' men. So we're going to look at Jesus' ministry. And then we're going to look at Jesus' men. Let's start with verse 7 as we look at Jesus' ministry. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. And the large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Jesus' influence is spreading now beyond the local area that he was ministering in, It's, it's going beyond Capernaum. It's now spread to the entire region of Galilee, to all of Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Edom, even beyond the Jordan. That, that Jesus' ministry isn't just a talk of local news anymore. Jesus' ministry has gone viral. It's gone nationwide. And he gathers, as a result, a crowd of people that are eager to listen to him. and And the word for crowd here isn't just any kind of crowd. It says that it's a large crowd. Depending on the translation that you use, it might say that that there's a multitude of people here. And just to drive the point home, Mark takes the time to repeat that word, large crowd, three times. He's saying that this group of people are big. It's really big. Did I mention how big this group is? And so big that Jesus has to gather a small boat in the water floating, waiting for him in case he needs to make a getaway. Now the crowd is, is so crazy, is, is more wild than Beatlemania, that he, that he needs a plan in case the crowd turns into a stampede and crushes him. Jesus isn't just some mythological fable here. He's actually a human being who had actual influence in the area. There, there's some popular uh, atheists so will try to argue that, that Jesus was conjured up by legend, that he was just some regular teacher whose stories became bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually kind of uh, ended up becoming a myth into itself. But what we see here is that Jesus was an actual man, a living human being whose teaching and acts were actually spreading around the area. That, that Jesus isn't some fake news mythology, but he was a real deal. And I'm not being biased if I actually say that. If you're not a Christian and you're here and you're wondering whether or not Jesus actually existed, I can tell you with certainty that he did. And we know that because the people that mentioned Jesus are not just the people that believed in him, but non-Christian historians of the day actually wrote about him and this influence that he had and the multitudes that were following him. Josephus, a Roman historian, wrote this in 93 AD, which is just... 60 years after Jesus' death, he says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such. Men received the truth with pleasure, and he drew over to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, end quote. 60 years is not long enough time for Jesus to become fable. It's not a long long enough time for legends to kind of develop. Jesus, here, based on the words of Josephus, actually existed. He's not legend. He's not fiction. He's a real historical figure. And his work is so influential, so known in the area that draws in many Jews and many Gentiles, many Greeks, many non-Jews. And you see that here in this passage. In fact, the, the people that come to Jesus here, that are listed in kind of that roster. Sometimes our, our minds can kind of draw a blank when we look at biblical areas uh, because we're not super familiar with the territory. But some of these areas are actually pretty significant. These people aren't from normal kind of Gentile areas. They come from particularly bad areas biblically. It says here that, that these people came to Jesus from Tyre and Sidon. These are two areas in the north. So if you think of kind of Jerusalem and here, and then you have Galilee up here, Tyre and Sidon would be way up here. And and these are two cities in the north. And if you read your prophets in your Old Testament, which I'm sure all of us love to do, you would know that these cities are not known for being great places. In fact, let me just read you two passages here about Tyre and Sidon and what they stood for, which is pretty much everything that God was against is what Tyre and Sidon were known for doing. Amos 1.9 says that the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Tyre, and it will consume its citadels. So God's prophecy in Amos to Tyre is that they're literally going to get incinerated by God's flames. Sidon's punishment is even worse. Ezekiel 28, 22-23 says, This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Sidon, and I will display my glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments against her and demonstrate my holiness through her. I will send a plague against her and bloodshed in her streets. The slain will fall within her while the sword is against her on every side, then they will know that I am the Lord. These two areas, Tyre and Sidon, are so bad that God is ready to enact judgment on them on the level of the plagues that he sent to Egypt. Plagues, suffering, fire. And it's these cursed people, from these cursed Places that come to Jesus. And Jesus heals them. You are never too far gone to go to Jesus. Sometimes when we think about our own lives, uh, the primary kind of thought that goes through our head is all the ways that we blew it. You can think about the highlight reel of all your, your biggest regrets keeping you up at night. Shameful moments that play on repeat. And sometimes some of it is overblown. But a lot of it might be accurate. Legitimate pain that we caused other people. Harm that we initiated. Sins that we committed against a holy God. And then when we hear passages like, what God says about Tyre and Sidon, we we think of God's judgment that he might levy against us. And when you get overwhelmed by that kind of guilt, when you think about your own assessment of yourself, that that guilt can often drive us away from God. Convince ourselves that what we need to do is to get our act together, to kind of clean ourselves up and then maybe God would see our presentable selves and be willing to give us a second chance. Or worse, we end up giving up. We try to go out and just distract ourselves from our worst insecurities. Or or worse, we we inflict on ourselves the judgment that we think that we deserve from God. And we end up hating ourselves and trying to inflict the judgment that God gave the tyrant side to ourselves for the bad things that we did. The good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, isn't that he's giving us another opportunity or another method to figure out how to be clean enough for him. The good news of the gospel is that the good king, Jesus, knowing that you and I deserve the incineration of Tyre and the plagues of Sidon, came to earth, became a man and bore that punishment himself. He bore the wrath of God the punishment that you and I deserve in full on the cross. And he died because of the sin that we committed. And he rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. He pays that penalty in full so that when Jesus comes to you and you go to him, the only requirement that Jesus has of you is to go to him. That if you want true relief this morning, There's nothing else that you have to do. There's no cleanup that you have to do. There's no pressed shirt that you would need to wear. There's no offering that you have to give. If you're looking for true forgiveness and grace, all you have to do is to go to him. The good news of the gospel is that we don't go to Jesus after we've become clean. We go to Jesus to become clean. And look at what happens when, when the crowd comes to Jesus there in verse 10. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Jesus heals those who touch him. They, they come to Jesus. They reach out to him. And when they touch him, they become clean. Have you gone to him? Have you taken the time to actually go to Jesus. Think about what these people had to give up in order to go to Jesus. These people had come from far off lands. They had to give up their own schedules. They had to give up their own work. They had to take everything going on in their lives and hit pause and go to Christ. Because they knew that what Jesus had to offer them was something that no one else could give. They, they prioritized seeing Jesus. I wonder what you've given up in order to follow Jesus. Christianity today is is full of people that that claim to be willing to give up their life for Christ, but can't seem to be able to give up their Sunday morning. All of us have endured inconveniences for for things that we care about. You can imagine yourself standing in line for a new product that just dropped, or traveling across the country in order to see a sick family member, or Or even helping a church member move to a new home. All of these things are inconvenient. But you do them if you value those things that you're inconveniencing yourself for. The more value that you place on that thing that you're getting, the less that inconvenience matters to you. Because your delight in that thing beats whatever discomfort that you have. Do you value Christ? Do you value him? Do you see the son of God as precious? Because if you do, then you go to him the same way that this crowd did to find the grace that you really need. And following Jesus requires more than just acknowledgement. We see that it requires true submission. You see that in verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus does not permit the demons to speak. He, he's fulfilling his ministry at deliberate pace. He's trying to make sure that the opposition comes at the right time. Nothing that happens in Jesus' ministry is a surprise to him. But he restricts their speech because his identity being revealed this soon would would actually disrupt his mission of going to the cross rather than helping it. The demons here are not allowed to publicize who Jesus is. But they identify him correctly. He is the son of God. Jesus is the son of a living God. He is God made flesh. But the demon's confession here doesn't come from a place of love. It comes from a place of fear. Because while the demons are accurate in their assessment of who Jesus is, their affection is lacking. They don't, they know exactly who Jesus is. The problem is they don't love him. Do you love Jesus? For those of us that are in Christ, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God isn't one of condemnation for us, but one of comfort. And Jesus' authority doesn't grow our terror, but our trust. This is Jesus' mystery. This is what he spends his time doing. This is what we've seen for the first three chapters of Mark. And he's about to take this miraculous, marvelous ministry. It draws him multitudes. He's going to take it and entrust it to a ragtag group of schmucks. See that in point number two. Jesus' men. Jesus' men. Look at verse 13. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He pointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus goes up a mountain, and he summons the men that will make up 12 disciples or apostles. Jesus doesn't raise up thousands. He doesn't commission that that large crowd or that multitude to become salesmen to kind of go out and pitch his brand the masses. Instead, Jesus chooses 12 men. Jesus 12, a dozen. And while Jesus' ministry isn't identical to the pastoral ministry, I don't want to make it sound like everything that Jesus does applies to to what pastors do in their job, but but I think that there are some good lessons here um, for us, and, and particularly for my job as a pastor. You know, one of my jobs as a pastor in serving you all is to smell like the sheep, to actually spend time with you, Right, uh, to get to know you, to, to hear your needs, and, and to know how to serve you. And I, I love doing that. It's been a privilege to spend time and to continue to get to know you. But if 20 years from now, I'm still the only one who's doing that, I would consider that to be a failure on myself as a pastor. That would be a knock against me and my ministry. As Pastor Steve reminded us last Wednesday at Bible study, 2 Timothy 1, Paul exhorts Timothy that what he's heard in the presence of many witnesses, he's supposed to entrust the faithful men who could do, carry on that work after him. Reliable men who are qualified to be able to teach others. One, one of my main responsibilities as a pastor is to become replaceable. Not that I do such a poor job that if I left, it wouldn't make any difference, but there's enough guys that are around that are able to shepherd alongside to work alongside me. A, a pastor shepherds the whole flock. And one of the ways that he does that is by raising up other men to continue the work long after he's gone. Jesus ministers to the masses, but he invests in 12. And those apostles were supposed to do three things that we see here. First thing that they're supposed to do that these apostles are supposed to be with Jesus. That's the number one part of their job description, is to be with Jesus, That, that their first responsibility isn't one of action, isn't one of service, but it's one of presence, presence. I wonder if you spend time with Jesus. Do you actually take the time to be with him? Do you go to his word? Do you spend time with his people? Do you open your Bible with unhurried time to be with Jesus? You spend uninterrupted time with prayer, in prayer. Have you incorporated spending time with God in your weekly schedule? Whatever patterns we exhibit during the week, They reveal our priorities. They show us what we really value. Do you spend time in Christ's body? Right. Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. One of the ways that we show that we prioritize our time in being with Jesus is by gathering together every Sunday morning to spend time with his body, listening to his word, worshiping him together. Sometimes uh, people will think of discipleship as kind of this big, high bar, hyper structured thing, right? Like a program. You might might have heard a pastor tell you that you need a Paul and you need to go find your Timothy, right? Or you might hear churches pitch um, programs for discipleship. And people will visit a church and ask, kind of, what do you have for us in order for us to be discipled? And they're expecting kind of a slot in the weekly schedule where you could come to church. The church will provide discipling for you. And, and what they want is usually a pretty good thing. They want to grow at a church. They want to make sure that whatever the church is doing is actually investing in the members, helping them grow, help them see Jesus and love them. But discipleship doesn't happen primarily through programs, but through presence. Through presence. What do I mean by that? If you want to be discipled, if you want to grow in your Christian life, the best way you could do that is by being around, by actually spending time with God and with other people. Spending time together. A real simple definition of discipling is helping someone else grow spiritually. Helping someone else grow spiritually. And that happens when you spend intentional time together. The first step to getting discipled by someone it's the same step that you see Jesus exhorting his apostles to do. Be with them. Be with them. right? To spend time with them. To share life together. Are you willing to spend time to be with someone? To be with someone? Spending time with others to help them grow is Jesus' strategy for for growing his ministry. For growing his 12 disciples. And it should be our strategy for growth as well. Sometimes we can be intimidated by the thought of discipleship because we think that it's some really high bar, something that you need a theology degree to do, Or, or the thought that if you reach out to someone to kind of invest in them, that you're somehow pitching yourself as though now you're the one who considers yourself to be the apex of Christianity. Sit down, son, and let me teach some things to you. That's not true. It's not arrogant of you to disciple. Rather, discipleship usually happens mutually. I benefit, I get benefit when I spend time with you and you share your life with me. I've been so blessed hearing more and more of your stories, right? I'm not someone who's only a teacher. I'm also here to learn, right? And oftentimes discipleship happens the same way. It doesn't mean that you don't gain more than the other person does. Oftentimes I gain way more than I give, but it's Christians sharing friendships together and helping each other follow Jesus. Other people say that they can't disciple because they're too busy. They may say that the kids occupy too much of your time or or that it's too inconvenient for others. But discipleship might look different depending on your situation. A lot of people imagine discipleship nowadays is kind of like meeting up with someone for coffee right? and, and reading through a Bible book together. That's a really good idea. A lot of my most precious discipling relationships look like getting in someone's car and going to Costco with them or helping them fold the laundry, or helping them put kids to bed, spending time with them. Discipleship can look as diverse and flexible as life because life is exactly where discipleship happens. Jesus calls the disciples to spend time with them. That means eating together, that means walking together, that means doing chores together, spending time together. If you wanna see First Baptist Church grow, invite someone over for dinner. Go on a walk. Stay a little while after this service ends. Right? What, what matters more than a growing number of people is the number of people here that are growing. The apostles are also sent out to preach. They go out to preach the gospel, and they went with the authority to teach and proclaim that Jesus had come. And Jesus also commissions us in, in Matthew 28 to go out, share the gospel, to, to teach people to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I hope that you and I feel that same call to go out and share the gospel with other people. But the third thing that the apostles are called to do is to have the authority to drive out demons. I wonder if you've done any demon exorcisms lately. I'm kidding. I I don't think that the focus here is that the apostles are are to go out and drive demons and that that's supposed to be some kind of model for us. If You look there, the command actually isn't to go out and and drive out demons. The command there is to have the authority to drive out demons. In other words, the, the apostles here are, are, are getting focused in by Mark for having the same authority that Jesus has. We you look at the first three chapters of Mark, the most significant thing that Jesus does is, is healing people and driving out demons, Right. in addition to his teaching. And so the apostles here are given that same power, the same authority as Jesus, to go out and drive out demons, that the authority that Jesus possesses as a son of God, he then distributes and delegates to his disciples. That Jesus has every ability to do the work of the ministry himself. We know that. He's God made flesh. He can do what he wants. He really doesn't need anyone else's help. But Jesus deliberately, intentionally distributes his authority to his disciples to also carry on that work. And and if we look next at kind of these descriptions of of the disciples and and who they are, we realize that they're actually a really quirky group of dudes. You can see that in verse 16. He appointed the 12 to, to Simon. He gave the name Peter. And to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. I want to note five things about these disciples. First, I want you to notice the specificity of the disciples. Specificity. We know every single one of them. You know their names. We know who they are. There was no belonging before joining for Jesus. This wasn't some kind of amorphous group where whoever shows up is welcome to this party. Jesus picks 12 specific men. These disciples are committed to following him. Second, you see the number of disciples. The number of disciples. How many apostles were there? That's not a rhetorical question. How many apostles were there? Twelve, yeah, there are twelve. Where else in the Bible do you see the number twelve? Yeah, the tribes of Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel. When Jesus picks twelve men, that's not just some random coincidence. Jesus is starting something new. He's starting the new Israel, a a new covenant people of God, and he's starting with these twelve men. Third, I want you to notice the names of these disciples. The names of these disciples. If you remember from a couple Sundays ago, we talked about Levi the tax collector getting called to follow Jesus. You notice that Levi's name isn't on this list? He's there, but he's not there. Here you see his his name that he's most commonly known as. His name is Matthew. And here embedded secretly into Mark's gospel is just another example of God's extravagant grace. That, that for Levi coming to Jesus, he doesn't need to bear his old name anymore. That he's been made new. That, that Jesus' disciples are full of those who are considered too far gone. You also see here a name that's a warning to us. You see Judas Iscariot, identified as one who will betray Jesus. Jesus knows that Judas will betray him, and he calls him anyway. You see here that, that Judas isn't some kind of plot twist to Jesus' plan. Didn't somehow interrupt Jesus' intentions. God knew exactly what he was doing in the life of Jesus. That he preordained that this betrayal would take place in order to fulfill his mission. As well as to show us his immeasurable patience and grace. Judas serves us as a warning. That those who may seem close to Christ may reveal themselves not to be followers at all. Judas heard every single one of Jesus' sermons. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Growing up in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. Repenting from sin and believing in Jesus, that's what makes you a Christian. We need to stay alert, vigilant against attacks from Satan from within and without. Alistair Begg describes it this way. He says that Judas is at the bottom of the list to warn us that proximity to Jesus does not earn you entrance into the kingdom of God. And Peter is at the top of the list to show us what a royal mess of your life you can make and still obtain the grace of God. Which brings us to point number four, the quality or lack thereof of the disciples. These guys are losers. Peter betrays Jesus. James and John were hotheads. Sons of Thunder was not a compliment about their passion. Andrew was timid. Thomas was a doubter. These guys aren't known for their amazing resume of skills to perpetuate Jesus' kingdom. And that's precisely why Jesus calls them. Psalm 8 says that God uses the mouths of infants to silence the avenger. And if you feel like you aren't much like these disciples are, God takes these losers, not to make much of them, but to make much of himself. If you feel like you aren't much, maybe it's so that God can use you in order to make much of his work in you. Lastly, you see here the diversity of the disciples. The diversity of the disciples. Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, someone who collects taxes for the Roman Empire. He also calls Simon the Zealot, whose life as a zealot was dedicated to overthrowing the Roman Empire. Both of them had to leave their lives in order to follow Jesus. Both of them were on radically opposed sides in Israel's life. And what they decided to do was to attach their allegiance, not to a donkey, not to an elephant, but to the lamb. Agreement amongst Christ's people is very important. Very important. We want to be a church who welcomes people who agree with us on the main things. The reason why we have a statement of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, is because we think that agreement is important. It's important for members of our church to agree on what the Bible teaches about important issues. We believe that the Trinity is true, that God is uh, one being in three persons. Right? We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man with any division, uh, mixture, or confusion. If someone doesn't agree with that, we think it's important for them to know that they're not welcome here to be a member of our church. They're welcome to attend our services, right? to hear more about what the Bible teaches. But they can't claim to be a Christian and disagree with us on those central issues. Agreement is extremely important. Right teaching of the gospel is important. Right, right? teaching of the Bible is important. But while we want to be a church who welcomes those who agree with us on the main things, we also want to be a church that welcomes people who agree with us on those main things but don't necessarily share the same opinion as us on other things. Part of the blessing of having a statement of faith, of having clear statements about what our church is agreeing to agree on in order to be together, is that we're also stating by implication, what we're agreeing to disagree on, right? That if something isn't in there, that it's actually okay for us to disagree while being part of the same church. That that disagreement on tertiary, secondary issues, while we agree on the main thing, actually displays the diversity and unique blessings of being part of the body of Christ. One of the things I love about the church is the diversity of the saints. Quite frankly, there are some of you in this room that I probably wouldn't spend time with if it wasn't for the fact that we share Jesus together. And I love that. One one of the stories that blessed me the most was uh, being part of a church in DC for several years where I knew of two people at the church that were part of the same small group. And one of them was a campaign manager for a Republican presidential candidate. And the other was a former campaign manager for a Democratic presidential candidate. I'm not gonna name any names, but it was a recent election that happened within the last couple decades. The Democrat was giving the Republican tips on running an effective campaign. That is extraordinary unity in a world that only sees diversity. That shows a love for one another that transcends the differences that the world seeks to wedge in between us to divide us. In order to have a conversation like that, you need to have your priorities straight. You need to be able to ignore people that tell you that whatever happens in the news is the most massive and the most important issue of the day. You have to truly believe that Jesus' blood and the gospel that, that he teaches us to herald is the main thing that we possess in our lives. You have to truly believe that Jesus and his people are more valuable than your politics, your preferences, or any of your other priorities. When Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot go to follow Jesus, both of them had to turn down the volume of the things that they were most passionate about because they found something new that was more important. Jesus was able to call these men to follow him, then that means that you can follow him too. I hope that all of us are able to take whatever strong opinions that we might have that are outside of the main things about Jesus and the gospel, that we're able to lay them at the floor because we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean that those other issues are unimportant. I have tons of disagreements and arguments with people that I dearly love that I'm in family relationships with. But what doesn't change is that the gospel that we share unites us in a way that will transcend whatever problems we have today. Jesus will still be on the throne after the presidential election. Jesus will still be on the throne after our greatest issues of the culture today. And we should care and speak into those issues and make sure that we're faithful witnesses to Christ but we shouldn't talk as though the world is somehow dependent on what human beings decide that our future should be. We know that Jesus is on the throne, and we can trust and follow him together. If Jesus is able to call this diverse assembly of, of unlikely people to follow him, that means that you and I can follow him too. At the end of the Great Commission, Jesus expands his authority and his presence, not just to these 12, but to all of us. Matthew 28, through 20, people talk about all the time. All authority under heaven and earth have been given unto me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you until the very end of the age. If you're in Jesus, and you're here this morning, Jesus is with you. Jesus is with our church, and we are privileged to follow him, not to make ourselves great, not to extol our own majesties, but to make much of Jesus, make much of Christ. Because when you see his miraculous ministry, when you see the invaluable grace that Jesus provides for all of us, that naturally draws us nearer to him. And as we draw near to Christ, Christ then sends us out to be his ambassadors to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit, not to rely on our own strength, but to rely on you and the work that you've provided for us. We can only do that by your help. So we ask that your spirit would empower us this week as we go to our family as we go to our friends, as we go to our coworkers, our neighbors, to, to give to them the invaluable gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.